This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Anna never had imagined such a depressing place. She didn't know what was worse, the scrawny, lame, and otherwise damaged animals, obviously bound for slaughter, or the fit, alert, younger ones who might easily suffer the same fate. Someone pointed her toward a big pen, where that morning perhaps a hundred horses had been crowded together prior to the sales. Only a few sad stragglers remained, each with a big, black number pasted to both hips. Desperate, Anna also searched the individual pipe rail stalls that housed a few healthier specimens. Could Duke have gone downhill so badly in just a year? She wouldn't even recognize him. But he still would stand out for his jacked black coat and the lightning bolt striped on his face. She saw no horse like that anywhere. Finally, she found a clerk and described Duke to her. The woman flipped through some pages on a clipboard. Black, warm blood, gelding, eight years old, stripe on face, lame, right foreleg? Yeah. He went on the block day before yesterday, sold out of state. Anna remembered her flutter of hope. Out of state? Where? Can you tell me? The clerk just frowned and shrugged. A passing worker told Anna, That means Mexico or Canada, one of the houses. Sorry, lady, he's long gone. For a few minutes, Anna still couldn't grasp what they were saying. Back then, she didn't even understand the terminology, but their dead voices and expressions told her all she needed to know. Duke had been loaded onto a truck, crowded in with dozens of other suffering and terrified animals, and sent to a slaughterhouse. She sagged against the fence of the big corral. In the heat and dust, she couldn't catch her breath and felt as if she might pass out. She shut her eyes against a tidal wave of grief and guilt. The shock of Richard's arrest, the loss of their house, and their whole lifestyle had all been bad enough. But in the process, overwhelmed, she turned her horse over to people who didn't care about him the way she did. She'd killed Duke. First, by crashing him into that damned jump a year ago. Then, by leaving it up to Brittany to sell him, and not even following up afterward. Even if I'd had Duke put down when he first tore the ligament, it would have been kinder than this. The idea of her beautiful, brave friend dying in such a horrible way turned Anna's stomach. She fought the urge to vomit in the sawdust right in front of the barn workers. Eyes still shut, she gripped the piped fence as if it were the rail of a heaving ship, and she might be swept overboard. Heavy breathing, a warm breeze against her cheek, a velvet nose nuzzling her. Anna gazed up into a big, dark eye that shone with compassion. Hey everyone, it's Valerie here. Today's guest, Eileen Watkins, is incredible. She's poised, genuine, and all class. She rides horses every week and has written a book about her life around horses. 
that I had the privilege to narrate and produce for her through Who Chains You publications. Eileen and I get right personal about this book, Reboot Ranch, and the characters and best of all the horses, and they are rescues. The book, this episode, is full of horse knowledge, where the characters are from, and how true the stories really are. She has a love for horses on so many levels, and is very educated on breeds, their personality traits, and the hidden underground world. She also gets into her next chapter, and her Cozy Mysteries series. And this series is about a cat groomer. As a side note, this was recorded early in 2021 over video. Eileen in Jersey and me in Calgary. Also, I need to just mention that some of the topics discussed are about the less positive side to the horse rescue world. Like PMU Farms, and that happens around the middle of the episode. And slaughterhouses are also discussed towards the end. It's graphic and definitely eye-opening and sad, but it's an issue we should discuss. I'm Eileen Watkins, and you can find uh, my books at www.efwatkins.com. Well, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome, and thank you for trusting me with your book. Oh, well, I'm very, uh, very glad that I did. Good. So today, I'm welcoming Eileen Watkins to the show, author of Reboot Ranch, a story of rescue inspired by true events. This book of hers I recently narrated, and an honor it was to produce such a great heartfelt book. Living in an area of the world where we have ranches and horses around us, the story felt like a good piece of home, kind of like a life that had to be shared. Anyone who's an animal lover of any sorts will love the furry characters in this book. Eileen Watkins worked for daily newspapers in New Jersey for 35 years, writing and editing stories on fine art, architecture, interior design, and home improvement. Meanwhile, she's published eight paranormal mystery and suspense novels. She also has written at Lesson Stables most of her life, and briefly owned a mare who inspired the character of Valentine, who is my favorite, in a reboot ranch. After placing her ill horse with a rescue farm in 2001, that's 20 years ago, Eileen decided to write the book as a tribute to the important work done by such organizations. She has always shared her home with at least one cat, And in 2017, launched the Cat Groomer Mysteries for Kensington Publishing. This month, 
she brings out the fifth book in that series, Claw and Disorder. The first four all received certificates of excellence from the Cat Writers Association. Eileen serves as publicist for Sisters in Crime Central Jersey and also belongs to National Sisters in Crime and to Mystery Writers of America. Visit her online at efwalkins.com. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so I absolutely love this book. I would like you to describe the cover. Is this a horse you know or... This, uh, the cover was is intended to represent um, the key per, the key horse in the book, who is my cat just came in and interrupted me. Um, no, that's okay. <laughs> the key horse in this book, which is who is Murphy, who is a thoroughbred, and um, I felt that he would be the best uh, representative, and I conceived of him a picture of him running free in a field because. Of the the whole concept of Reboot Ranch is that you know they're living a more natural life. They've been saved from um, difficult and dangerous sometimes circumstances. And um, uh, I went looking online for something that might capture this. Um, and the funny thing was that I'm looking for a gray thoroughbred running in a field. I didn't think it'd be that hard, but I, there was a lot of gray horses, and they were all different breeds. <laughs> And I found Arabians, I found Lipizzaners, I found, uh, but it was hard to find one that looked like a thoroughbred. So finally, um, I was working, I, I found them on iStock, and I took about three pictures and sent them to um, the publisher, um, the woman who, was, who runs Who Changed You, and um, she picked the one that she felt was fit, fit best for the format of the cover. Mm. But uh, to me, it was important to have that feeling of space around him and freedom. And uh, she actually at one point wanted to add some more elements. I said, no, I want the cover as uncluttered as possible so we have that feeling. So describe the cover for us. So you have a horse, thoroughbred. Yeah, we have a, have a, a, a apple gray horse and he's running in a field. And in back of him, you can see hills and you can see um, uh, the, the distant fences. So that you know that he's in a, a, in a controlled field of some kind. But um, there's space around him, there's sky above him, and, you know, the sky has the title superimposed over it. Right. And he's kind of free looking. He's looking free. He's looking very relaxed. He's got a happy expression on his face. That's right. Yeah. It's a great cover. Mm-hmm. Um, was it, so it wasn't a horse you knew, but it was a, the, it represented Murphy, who was the star, one of the star characters. And I, I'll probably be book. talking a little later about you know, how Murphy came to be, how I created that character. Mm-hmm. So your love for horses dates back. Can you give us some of your background? Uh, well, I did not come from any kind of the rural background. I lived in the suburbs. And so I can only blame it on, um, at the time that I was growing up as a small child, there were a lot of Westerns on TV. I probably first noticed horses in Westerns. Um, I had stuffed animals of all kinds, and I loved animals of all kinds. And um, a couple of towns away, they had a pony ride, and uh, my father would occasionally bring me there. And he was probably sorry that he ever did that because mm-hmm. I was one of these kids that was like, pony, pony. And uh, uh, I basically became 
hooked on the whole idea of horses. I just fell in love with the idea, you know, the, the image of horses. And then uh, in grade school, from probably the time I was about six to, um, to 12, I took lessons at a county stable, uh, group lessons with a lot of kids and, uh, you know, probably rode very badly, as most of us did. Um, and then during my, my high school and college, I was too tied up with other kinds of extracurriculars and things like that. And it wasn't, you know, geographically convenient. So I got away from it then. But right after college, um, I went back and started taking lessons. And um, off and on, you know, my whole adult life, I, I did it when I could. Um, sometimes uh, funds were short. Sometimes, again, in geography, it wasn't that convenient. But um, I just kept going at it and going at it. And uh, now at, at uh, in retirement age, I'm still taking um, lessons with a group of mature women around the same age. And uh, the only thing I can say for us is a lot of us have a lot of experience. So they give us the horses that are giving other people trouble. And they say, okay, you guys are going to fix them. You know? so, oh, wow. You're so kinda, brave. Kind of keep up where they're not dangerous horses, but we kind of keep up their training. You know, we get some lazy ones and we make them work, you know, <laughs> things like that. So, wow. So how often do you do that? I go once a week. Wow. I'm like, I have this, um, nervousness about horses just because of their giant stature. Mm -hmm. I've never been super brave, although I have attended horse camps and things like that to kind of. I've ridden at this place alone. I've ridden horses from 14 hands, which is pretty much, uh, you know, a pony size to 16 two, which is a really like a rather large thoroughbred size and everything in between. And mm. right, right now I'm on one that's um, sort of medium size and that's, suits me pretty well you know I uh, I don't particularly like to I used to say about big horses if, if they're if they're slow it's hard to get them moving and if they're fast it's hard to stop them so you know I like a horse that I'm kind of well suited to oh that's neat that's really cool Eileen um do you have a favorite passage in the book uh well my favorite passage is probably the um and the one that you mentioned where um, uh, Anna discovers Valentine in the, at the, mm. yeah. And she, uh, she goes to a, a, a um, auction house looking for a horse that belonged to her that she has been told was sent there. And she's too late to save that horse. And she, right after she finds out that she's too late to save that horse, she, um, and well, I can read it if you want. Let's no, just, not, yeah, I like how you set the one. stage. Let's, um, let's hear you read a, a passage from there because this is my favorite part of the book. Okay, well, this comes fairly early in the book. Um, in this scene, uh, Anna, who was one of the two main characters, has just explained to her niece, MJ, that she originally bought the farm in hopes of saving her beloved horse, Duke, who has gone to auction without her knowledge. Anna remembers searching for him on the auction grounds. So this is kind of a flashback. Mm -hmm. Anna never had imagined such a depressing place. She didn't know what was worse. The scrawny, lame, and otherwise damaged animals, obviously bound for slaughter, or the fit, alert younger ones who might easily suffer the same fate. Someone pointed her toward the big pen, where that morning perhaps a hundred horses had been crowded together prior to the sales. Only a few stra sad stragglers remained each with a big black number pasted to both hips. 
Desperate, Anna also searched the individual pipe rail stalls that housed a few healthier specimens. Could Duke have gone down here so, so downhill so badly in just a year that she wouldn't even recognize him? But he still would stand out for his jet black coat and the jagged lightning bolt stripe down his face. She saw no horse like that anywhere. Finally, she found a clerk and described Duke to her. The woman flipped back through some pages on a clipboard. Black warm blood gelding, eight years old, stripe on face, lame right foreleg. Yeah, he went on the block day before yesterday. Sold out of state. Anna remembered her flutter of hope. Out of state? Where? Can you tell me? The clerk just frowned and shrugged. A passing worker who overheard told Anna, that means Mexico or Canada, one of the houses. Sorry, lady, he's long gone. For a few minutes, Anna still couldn't grasp what they were saying. Back then, she didn't even understand the terminology, but their dead voices and expressions told her all she needed to know. Duke had been loaded onto a truck, crowded in with dozens of other suffering and terrified animals, and sent to a slaughterhouse. She sagged against the fence of the big corral. In the heat and dust, she couldn't catch her breath and felt as if she might pass out. She shut her eyes against a tidal wave of grief and guilt. The shock of Richard's arrest, the loss of their house, their friends, their whole lifestyle had been bad enough. But in the process, overwhelmed, she turned her horse over to people who didn't care about him the way she did. She killed Duke, first by crashing him into that damn jump a year ago, then by leaving it up to Brittany to sell him and not even following up afterward. Even if I'd had Duke put down when he first tore the ligament, it would have been kinder than this. The idea of her beautiful, brave friend dying in such a horrible way turned Anna's stomach. She fought the urge to vomit in the sawdust right in front of the barn workers. Not that it was likely to affect them much after what they saw every day. Eyes still shut, she gripped the pipe fence as if it were the rail of a heaving ship and she might be swept overboard. Heavy breathing, a warm breeze against her cheek, a velvet nose nuzzling her. Anna gazed up into a big dark eye that shone with serenity and compassion. Startled, she stepped back to assess the scrawny chestnut mare with the heart-shaped spot on her forehead. The horse wheezed a little with every breath, probably had heaves, which would be aggravated by the hot, dusty condition of the auction pen. Yet that beautiful liquid eye was full of soul. Miserable as the mare must be herself, she seemed to sense Anna's pain and to want to console her. Was that moment some kind of spiritual awakening? At any rate, it moved Anna to take the most impulsive action of her life. She waited an hour for the next auction, outbid a couple of killers for the skinny chestnut mare, then put her in the rented trailer and drove her home. That's totally the part that I just like. <laughs> well, that was very heartfelt, you know. That was based. Uh, my my horse, my own horse, did not. Uh, I did not um, meet up with her or acquire her under those circumstances. But when I was getting ready to retire her, I went through some moments like that with her. Mm. Hmm. I felt it was up for me, up to me to save her, really, from whatever else might happen to her. And your horse's name was Brenda, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. 
And you had her for quite a few years. I had her for at least two years. And most of that mm. time I shared her um, with a, uh, a teacher, an instructor at the, at the first stable where we were we operating. Okay. Um, so the instructor was using her for lessons. And I was, was finally, for the only time in my life, able to just go up to the stable when I had the time, ride the horse, not have to take a lesson, not have to be supervised. Because otherwise... You know, with insurance and everything, you've got to you've got to have an instructor there. Hmm, so uh, okay. I was the first one the freedom to uh, ride a horse as if it were as if she were mine. Uh, and then that situation kind of broke down. And when it did, um, I had a feeling that my instructor was very reluctant to stop using her because she felt like she'd be euthanized. And uh, I thought, to me, I thought the only way of relieving her from that responsibility and making sure the right thing was done was to buy her out and, um, you know, find a safe place to retire the horse myself. And that's what I did. Hmm. Um, just so everybody knows, we're on video, so we can see each other's emotions over the camera as we tell the story mm-hmm. that Eileen has so heartfeltly wrote. So let's just set the stage for the book. So we have Anna, who's the auntie, who's been through kind of a trials and tribulations of her own. Her marriage kind of went south. Her husband was a bit of a shyster. Um, And then her niece, whose name is MJ, and MJ decided to come and live with her for the summer. She was kind of also going through a little bit of teenager trials and tribulations herself. She was a bit lost in high school. Um, her, her father had passed away. And so these two, they became, they had this bond. So MJ goes and lives with Anna on her rescue ranch. Mm -hmm. And the start of the rescue ranch was with Valentine. Right. Mm -hmm. And so these two young women, they hold the fort down and really go through running this farm, Mm -hmm. running this ranch. And you know, they just, by the skin of their teeth, figure this out along the way and really have a passion and a, and a commitment to each other as an aunt and a niece. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, it's not necessarily a mom and daughter relationship. It's more a friendship and a mentorship. Yeah. Do you understand that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing and, is that when I first wrote it, um, I think one of the reasons it was very difficult for me to place with anybody was because um, I envisioned it as a women's fiction. And I also wanted it to be hmm. accessible to um, YA audience. I didn't want it to be so adult um, at, that um, younger people wouldn't be able to understand it, wouldn't be able to relate to it. So that was one reason why I decided to bring in the MJ character and write you know, almost half the book from her point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is that most of the things that have been written that anywhere along this line have been marketed as romances or mysteries, something right. like that, you know, some kind of a, of a real um, a genre that people can, can really get their teeth into. I didn't want to make it, I didn't want to slant it too far in the direction of either. It's, mm-hmm. got, a little, it's got a little bit of romance. It's got a little bit of mystery, but it's, it's about their relationship and their cause. 
you know, Mm -hmm. what I want, how, what I wanted it to be about. And I love that about it because it's not very often you come upon a, a book that I loved and my nine-year-old daughter listened to it as well. And Mm -hmm. she loved it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so refreshing to be able to have this story that both generations can reflect on and can be connected to. Yeah. I think you nailed it. (laughs) Most definitely. Um, So now that we've set the stage, so your experience around horses and racetracks and things like that, is that true or is some of that kind of what you know of a racetrack or what you know of? write a lot about racetracks although I do a lot write, write about um, the situations um, that racehorses experience the way they're trained right okay yeah that's clear mm-hmm. um, that there's a great potential for abuse and there is uh, you know and there's sort of a built-in um, some built-in problems that aren't going to be easily solved uh, primarily the fact that they race them so young that their legs really are not, in most cases, um, up to the pressure of racing. And uh, in fact, when I was when I submitted the book to my publisher, um, that was one of the things she asked me about because I didn't, you know, mention that too much. She said, you know, uh, all these horses, race horses, are dying in this track in California. She should say something about that. And I said, well, that's a complicated issue because you know the, it could be the footing in the track, it could be a lot of things. I said, what I what I am willing to go on record for is the fact that everybody agrees that two years old is probably too young to be putting all the pressure on these horses physically. And mm-hmm. that a lot of them have to have um, remedial um, health treatment all their lives after that, even if they're retired to be riding horses and that kind of thing. So I said, I will definitely say that because that's, that's fact. You know, nobody can say that I'm, that I'm uh, being too harsh and making that up. But um, my primary uh, experience with being around all those lessons tables. I mm. probably have written a dozen different lessons tables, uh, most of them in New Jersey. And uh, so I had an idea of what people go through when they try to run a stable, you know, um, the, the expense involved, the, the fact that even under the best of circumstances, the horses get somewhat injured, they get, they get sick, they have to be taken care of. Um, and uh, I felt that, you know, with just a little bit of research, I can write believably about that. Mm-hmm. So if a if a horse starts racing at two years old, how long is their career at that young age to start? Well, it varies because, of course, some of them are sturdier than others. But uh, it's a very it's a very technical thing, and, and people can look it up if they want to. But they have plates in their legs that um, are are separated when they're young, and they gradually come together. And by about three or four, they're as sturdy as they're going to be. Before that, they're not. So there's, you know, even if they don't break a leg or things like that, um, their, their their muscles and their bones get stressed out hmm. and show up. And that, that problem can show up, you know, for years afterwards. So it's, and it's, you know, I do say something about it in the book. It's a financial thing because it's very expensive to raise, especially a whole stable full of racehorses. You don't know which ones are going to ever make money at the track. So you're really raising more horses than you're going to get an income from. And um, um, and then when they wash out, 
there they go into the system they go they go into the you know they go to auctions they go to uh you might try to sell them privately but an awful lot of pretty healthy horses go into these auction situations because you know they're not they're not paying their keep they're not earning their keep and through no fault of their own you know right and when I was doing research after I read your book, I was looking up all of these things that you spoke about um, and a lot of the terminology I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, I'm going to ask you some questions in a minute about that. But is it true or is it accurate to say that if a horse breaks its leg, that's very difficult <laughs> for them to repair or they have to be put down? It's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, these days... Um, they have the technology to do more things than they were able, you know, able to do in the past because they have, you know, like with people, they have high tech casts and things like that. Part of the problem is that the horse has to be immobilized for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not, they're not built for that, ment- physically or mentally. They're built to wander and wander and wander. People, you know, even even with racing, people say, well, it's cool to make them run that fast. Actually, they run that fast in nature. Uh, right. they, run, they run for fun. You turn the uh, field of thoroughbreds loose, and they will run. Hmm. Um, but um, they're they're made to just be on the move, and uh, it affects everything from their legs to the digestion to their mental state. If they have to be immobilized, um, and then there are some breaks that are just so bad that it's really a very slim chance of ever, of really healing them. You know, hmm. people there are clean breaks, there are spiral fractures, there are things like that. You know. Um, it's not, it's not a, you know, in, in the modern world with a little, enough money to treat them, it's not a death sentence, you know, like maybe it was on the prairie, but it, right. it could be depending on how bad the break is. So. so if they can be repaired, but they have to be immobilized to do it, like I've, I've read some things around horses and if they lie down for so long, it's kind of crushing on their internal organs things like that and is it true like if they stand up they sleep while standing but they only sleep for like 30 minutes at a time well and no for the most part they sleep standing up and they do lie down for short periods of time if they're healthy they can get right back up again obviously Mm -hmm. in my book you know there's a situation where there's a horse that's that's very unhealthy and um he lies down and has an a extremely difficult now, uh, time getting up. Now, I won't get into this too much, but my horse um, eventually died of natural causes. Um, she was in poor health and she was turned out for her breathing problem. It was the best thing for her. Hmm. Supposedly, what the vet said was that she tried to get up and she didn't have the strength to get up. and She had, probably had a heart attack because mm-hmm. they weigh, you know, she even if she was thin, they, you know, a healthy thoroughbred or quarter horse or whatever weighs 1,200 pounds. And uh, a, a scrawny, skinny one still weighs eight or 900 pounds. Hmm. So they've got to be strong enough to get themselves back on To their get own. that whole body up on those little legs of theirs. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't want to get into slaughterhouses quite yet. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that in a bit, but let's talk about some of the verbiage you used. Me, I mean, I've seen horses and been to stables and not a ton. So some of the words that you used in your book, 
I had to look up because I didn't actually know what they meant. Mm -hmm. So let's go through some of these and just kind of educate our audience on some of these horse terms. Mm -hmm. So first up, we have gelded. So tell us what that means. Altered, like a cat or a dog. Okay. And that's, of course, obviously a male. because A male. They very rarely do anything like a hysterectomy or an, on a female. It's too complicated. But they just they fix all the males that they don't intend to breed. Because and so what age I, do they start gelding at? I think, I guess it, it depends. Um, it really depends uh, because if you geld them a little bit later, they may develop certain physical characteristics that you that might be desirable, you know, in a show horse, that sort of thing. Um, I think they can geld them um, less than a year. You know, mm. They usually they often geld them less than a year if they know that that's what they want to do. Um, because I actually, you know, I, I knew a situation where uh, a mare at a small stable, a small less than stable that had a foal, and um, he wasn't a year old and he was trying to mate with mama. So they were oh, like, wow. Hey. <laughs> he was already ready. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, mm. one, one or the other of them could get hurt if, if that situation. So, you know, they have to separate, start separating them. But, um, uh, and it, it also helps with their temperament too, right? Italian has a lot of energy and a lot of, a lot of temperament. And, um, you know, again, individuals are different mm-hmm. uh, and a lot depends on how they're raised. An environment. Uh, but if you've got, and, and I make reference to this in the book where, where um, uh, uh, Anna asks Clint, who brings Murphy to her, and she can tell that Murphy's a ball fire. And she says, you know, he is gilded, right? And he said, yeah, I guess they tried everything to quiet him down. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, they just, you know, he was obviously, and, and a lot of racehorses and show horses, they try to keep them stallions if they can because they want to breed them. Right, especially if they're good and fast. Yeah. Um, there have been uh, very, very good racehorses that have won big races that could never be bred because they were gelded, you know, early. Mm. And um, that's, you know, their their owners missed out on a little bit of income there, you know. But, uh, but at any rate, you know, that's one term. <laughs> one term. Yeah. And what's a warm blood? A warm blood is a... A, it's a very general term. It can be applied to a lot of horses, but basically these days what it means is it's a sport horse that is a cross between um, a thoroughbred, which thoroughbreds and Arabians are considered are called hot bloods. Um, it's a cross between that and a larger, heavier horse that creates a big, strong sport horse. Hmm. So it's, um, it's like a draft horse uh, type of breed crossed with a thoroughbred. Now, each one of them has a different specific name, but warm okay. is just a general ca- category for this. So in other words, Anna's, Anna's horse Duke would have been a big, um, strong, uh, good-looking sport horse. It was, it was bred for jumping and dressage and things like that. Right. Okay. So it hasn't really anything to do with their color. It's the breed. What's the breed. Okay. Yeah. Um, talk about paddocks. So what's interesting is here, we don't call them paddocks, or it's not like a common term to use from what I know. Um, We just call them farms or put them out in the pen. Well, that's, it's it's basically like a pen, like a large pen, Mm -hmm. smaller than a field, you know, big enough for the horses to, you know, move around a little bit, maybe even run a little bit. 
but um, you know, not a great big field where they might graze or you know be far. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's kind of to keep them contained, not necessarily to be grazing around. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing in the book that is really poignant is when an unwelcome guest shows up at the farm. And one thing that was spotted was the type of footprint that was left behind. Mm-hmm. So typically these girls would be wearing, um, Mostly well, the, in your book. Yeah. Well, well now you have to have had off boots too. Mm-hmm. Basically these, those are like sort of short English boots, really, you know, what do you call them? You know, like fashion desert boots. I mean, mm. they have a life there, go up to about your ankle, you know, mm-hmm. kind of round toe, you know, practical kind of, of shoe, shoe like that. And um, so when a paddock boot showed up. And they know what they, what they found was the print from a Western boot. Western, right. So they found a Western boot where Western. everybody around there Western wore paddock. Boot looks like a, a fashion, fashionable type of Western boot is a pointy toe. Pointy toe, high heel. Mm-hmm. Right. Something that you wouldn't really use when you're working in the stables or. Yeah, probably not too much heavy work around the boot. Oh, just say that one more time, Eileen. Probably not doing heavy work around the barn. Right, exactly. More for show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's a buckskin? Well, now I described the buckskin in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very aware of that because I thought, you know, there's liable people who don't know this term. So I described this color a couple of times. Um, it's basically a, a tan horse with a black mane and tail and kind of black points like a Siamese cat. And you've seen them. You probably mm-hmm. seen them. You just didn't know what to call them. And it can be anywhere from a very light tan to a very rich, uh, you know, uh, reddish kind of tan. But mm. those markings are um, kind of, they're kind of classic uh, Mustang markings, but they're very, very common in quarter horse. They're common in a quarter horse. Mm-hmm. And they are a bigger horse? No, the, the, well, a quarter horse is a very medium sized horse. It's okay. Medium sized horse and um, strong and stocky. Mm. Because they're cattle, they're cattle horses. They're they're the kind of horses that you use to cut cattle and you know rope and things like that. Okay. They use for a lot of things, but that's what they were bred for. So. What mm-hmm. does it What does it mean to pull the mane? Pulling the mane. If you if you see a race horse, an English show horse, um, they've always got a mane that's very even and about four inches long. And it's always not trained to the side of their neck. They don't have, you know, long shaggy manes. Mm. That's, but you can't cut it because it would come out bristly like a brush. So what they do, what they do is they pull the longer hairs with a comb. And um, it really doesn't, it's supposedly the horses do not have many nerve endings there. It really doesn't hurt them the way you'd think it would. Some of them get a little fractious just because they don't know what the heck is it doing, but it's really not pain. And um, it takes a long, it takes a long time. So you got to kind of, <laughs> you know, they hard. So you essentially hours. take the whole mane and you just start pulling pieces of the, the so long hair just kind of falls, hair. pulls out. And then there's only the shortest hairs are left. Wow. Until you get it to the length that you want. And then hmm. you stop. If it's starting to come out like about four inches, then you just go on to the next section. That's the way you want it. So Neat. You're styling. And do they do that with the tails as well? You know how your hairdresser spins your hair? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Huh. That's so interesting. Um, what's a red roam? It's Rome. R-O-A-N. Roan. Sorry, yeah, my typo. 
Um, that is a chestnut horse. Let me, the chestnut horse is red all over, mane, tail, everything. Um, mm. And a, a roan would be white hairs pretty evenly scattered throughout so that the horse almost looks pinkish. Oh, neat. A blue roan would be a black or, or a dark brown horse with the light hairs scattered throughout. So they're, they're kind of unusual looking. Hmm. Are they um, like a show horse or just a regular? It's just a color. It's, just a color. it's okay. uh, more common in some breeds than it's more common in some breeds than others, but it does go across, you know, you can have heavy horses that are that color. You can have quarter horses. That mm. Occasionally even shows up on thoroughbreds, although it's not that common among them. Okay. And a draft mare. A draft horse is a horse that's like a Clydesdale that mm. is bred for pulling uh, heavy, heavy loads, heavy carts and things like that, which I think in the old days, you know, they called draft carts. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're bigger. Um, they're usually calmer than the hot blooded horses. They're, they're mm-hmm. considered cold blooded horses. Hmm. Okay. What about dressage? Dressage is, um, dancing on horses. Dressage hmm. is, is those horses, are, are horses like, um, the Spanish riding school, Lippa's honors, uh, and dressage is what I, you know, do at a very, very lower level. Um, basically the horse learns to balance himself a little bit more on his hind legs, which makes him very agile. He can pivot in any direction. He can, mm. you know, prance and things like that. Um, so I think I, I probably just mentioned that toward the end when I was talking about how she could re-educate the, uh, the couple of horses, the couple of colts that she was going to take in. Um, and she talked about it a bit with MJ because, M, or you did, because oh, MJ. <laughs> MJ had some dressage training, I think, right? With her mom and dad. And I, and I did that on Brenda too. So. Oh, you did that on Brenda as well? Mm-hmm. Oh, neat. Do they also call that um, vaulting? No, vaulting is, is like a circus thing where the horse is galloping around you and, and people jump on and off the horse or stand on the horse and things like that, you know, acrobats. Hmm. Much, not something I would take on. No, I actually, <laughs> funny. Yeah, I actually did some of that when I was in um, a riding camp when I was like 12 years old. Mm-hmm. They had they had horses that you could take a one session a day and do this vaulting on it. So I actually did some of that as a young kid at this horse riding camp. They have kids or very light, agile people do that sort of thing. I was tiny and agile then and way braver than I am today to try something like that. Um, Okay. What's PMU? So a couple of the horses that Anna rescued from, like an SPCA type mm-hmm. scenario were headed off for PMU or came from a PMU farm. I have a, a nice um, discreet description uh, written here that I will uh, read instead of getting into the gory details. Uh, okay. It's an industry in which estrogen from pregnant mares is collected for a product to treat menopausal symptoms in women. That is a tidy summary. And I, I can tell you, if you if you want the uh, the um, acronym translated, it's, it stands for pregnant mare urine. <laughs> pregnant mare urine. Yeah. 
And it's, according to what I read as well, it is quite common. Well, yes and no. I don't, uh, I I think it's another thing that really isn't um, being done that much in this country anymore because Mm. it was was so, um, such a problem. Uh, But it's being done in neighboring countries because um, the, the mayors are just, they stand in the stalls all day long. They have this equipment attached to them. And the worst part is they have to be pregnant to produce this stuff. So they let them get impregnated and then they eventually give birth to the foals and there's nowhere for the foals to go. There's they, nobody, nobody wants them, you know, unlike a, a, a show farm or a, a race, right, race farm, horse. They're, they're, you know, breeding them for a certain reason. Um, these foals are just uh, uh, collateral damage and they get sent to auction. And that's one reason why the, uh, this group is contacting Anna at the, in the end and saying, you know, we've got a, a bunch of these foals. Can we place them with you? Because mm-hmm. they, went to, they went to one of these places and probably a rescue, an auction and just rescued a bunch of them, this uh, Humane Society, and they mm-hmm. took them in and they have to place them now. So she was trying to figure out what they could be retrained for. Right. And they were pretty cute too. How you describe them in your book? They were kind of like you wanted to keep them. They were this cute little pair. Little horse uh, draft horses, and uh, it's true that um, draft mares are used for this a lot because mm. they produce a lot of this. Stuff. So, um, uh, but as a result, people don't need that many horses to plow their fields anymore. They don't need them to pull right loads for working. So why in the world are you, would you breed scads and scads of draft horses when there's no need for them? I mean, mm-hmm. you're really you're putting them in the pipeline, you know? Gee. One thing Eileen does in her book is she just kind of sheds light on all these different avenues that come into <laughs> horses and horse farms and rescue farms and the pl- the people who try to help as little as they can or the little bit that they can makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And one of the stories that Eileen tells in this book two times from two different perspectives, which I loved how you did that, is the story about the starfish. Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell us the story, the story about the starfish? And it kind of sums up the whole premise of this book in the perfect way. Now, you might have my book available there, but I do credit this to the person who who wrote the original. Mm -hmm. Uh, I heard it um, a couple of times. I was probably listening to um, uh, programs on the radio or something like that. And, uh, you know, about people, you know, doing um, what's the word? Well, doing difficult causes, helping out in difficult causes, and how sometimes it seems so futile. And um, basically, in the starfish story, um, an old man is walking down the beach, and uh, he sees all these starfish that have been washed up by the tide, some kind of a you know weather thing that has has beached them all. And there's thousands of them all over the beach. And up ahead, he sees a little boy who's picking them up and throwing them back in the water. And uh, he's thinking, boy, that's just, you know, that's, that's kind of sad, you know, and he probably feels sorry for them, but, you know, he's, he's not accomplishing anything. So he catches up with the little boy and he says, 
um, son, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's not going to do any good because look at them. You know, there's, there's a million of them, and there's many more than you can ever help. And he picks up a starfish and he throws it back in and said, it made a difference to that one. <laughs> and that story always makes me cry. So. <laughs> but um, I compare it with, you know, at the very end, especially, you know, MJ and, and NR, um, uh, they're being told the story and, uh, you know, they think how similar that is to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And just like that, it makes me tear up too. <laughs> and just like that, um, small gesture has such a huge result. Well, Even if it's just to one person or one animal or like MJ helping Anna out just that one time. Mm-hmm. Or when Anna is out and she's going to pick up Murphy and MJ's there and Walt happened to just show up a little bit early and helped her out. Yeah. Like, I feel like the story, um, even though it literally was told two times in your book, I feel like there's all these little mentions throughout your book that really brings it closer together. And that little bit of help from the neighbor, he came over, or they, um, the kids all showed up to help with the training of Murphy. Like, you, you have a way of bringing everything kind of together in your book that just made it just such a heartfelt story. Like, I absolutely love your book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's really, it, it's, um, it, it applies so much across the board because the only way most people can help in a situation, you know, like that is to help one person, one, one animal at a time, you know? Right. Uh, not many people have the money, the resources, and whatever to help lots and lots and lots of people or lots and lots and lots of creatures. But right. almost everybody can do something. You know? One, yeah, one one thing just has this huge impact. Mm-hmm. And you know, when we're going through this COVID world that we're all going through, and being able to share a book like yours or have that one little gesture or common thread like you and I are forever connected because of your book and you know because I read the words that you wrote and they impacted me so much and have my daughter be able to hear your book she couldn't quite get into reading it but to hear her mom narrate her book your book I mean um, it's just so neat that she can have that emotional effect as well in a story that, yeah, it has true events in it, but it is a story and it's still. Yes, you, but PMU is lie. <laughs> I know she, she will question me about it. That's for it's sure. Fine. I mean, it's, it's fine for young teenagers. They can grasp that, but the really young children, a little over their heads. Yeah. Some of that is a little bit too much reality, right? Mm-hmm. They don't need to know all that yet. Um, I have a question that I wanted to ask about Josh. So Josh is the trainer that everyone talks about to Anna. You need to bring Josh in to help with Murphy. And Murphy is this rescue horse that's full of attitude and full of craziness, even though he is gilded. 
give me a chance later on to tell you how I got to Murphy. But that's <laughs> okay. This will be a good segue. And so she reads up about Josh, and Josh has a way of like a horse whisperer kind of persona. And so he can kind of sit in a field and um, really connect with the horse on a totally different level. It's not like a, a big cowboy. He comes in like shorts and a t-shirt and he's a little bit arrogant almost in the beginning because he's very, very trained in what he does. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Anna's a little bit like, well, anybody can kind of do this right at first, but then she sees Josh work with the horse in a way that Anna hasn't really been privy to or really thought of yet. Can you tell like, how common is that today to have somebody like Josh? And can you give a bit of his background? Is he is he somebody you know or no? It's a, it's a lot more common than than it used to be. Um, uh, we went through that period, you know, with the horse whisperer and whatever, where it was being presented as something exotic. But this is natural horsemanship, and it's really very very common now among both the Western people and and English people. Um, and it's basically just a matter of, uh, it's, it's based on having observed horses interact with each other in the wild, in, in when they're free, and how they, how they get each other's respect and how they communicate with each other. And basically the, uh, the trainer does the same sort of thing. You know, the trainer uses body language and even eye contact and things like that um, in order to get the horse to accept, to not be afraid, but to accept him as the leader. And this is obviously a woman can do the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he teaches Anna to do the same thing. Um, because horses are herd animals, they, they look to a leader, you know, especially when things are, are stressful, when they're afraid of something, they look to a leader for what to do. And um, if if the horse is nervous and you get nervous too, the horse gets hysterical because they're like, you know, nobody is telling me what to do here. And just, no one's in control. Yeah, right. No one's in control. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are, are ways, you know, that, that they can communicate with the horses that the horses understand. And mm. so, um, and then he also did, you know, like desensitizing things. I have seen um, people do these desensitizing workshops so that the horse is exposed to a lot of strange things. But the whole point is the horse is exposed to strange things. It kind of, you know, hypes them up and makes them a little bit nervous. And then the trainer provides security. The trainer is able to to steer them through it. The result is that they start trusting and respecting the trainer. And that translates into everything else. That translates into, into a bond. Yeah, a bond where they don't want to hurt this person and they're not afraid of this person at the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, in, you know, intended to be um, much more humane, and it's certainly 180 degrees away from the whole um, old-fashioned cowboy thing, where you just put a saddle on the horse and and buck until one of you dies, <laughs> until the right. horse collapses or or kills you, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's meant to be you know the antithesis of that. So, but obviously, it's not just the Western thing. I mean, it works it works you know, across the board. It's becoming much more the way to train horses. Mm-hmm. And the problem really in the beginning is not so much that she doesn't believe in him, but uh, 
A, she's afraid, you know, she, she thinks she can handle Murphy herself, but in the back of her mind, she's kind of like, this could be too much. And she's also doesn't have a lot of money. And she knows mm-hmm. that this guy is, is, you know, he, he goes to clinics and he's used to, you know, working Pricey. with people who have yeah, uh, deep pockets and he's, she's afraid that, you know, she's, he's, he's going to charge her so much that she won't be able to use them anyhow. So she's got that skepticism. Mm-hmm. But I like how she kind of becomes a bit humbled through it all mm-hmm. and really can see the value in Josh's style mm-hmm. and he's kind to her and he knows she's, she's there doing one good thing for yeah. one horse. And you can see that's apparent. So he's, he's given her, some help and he I think he gave her a bit of a deal too didn't he yeah 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 for that but you know the one thing that unites all of the characters at least all the you know positive characters is that they all love horses and they all believe in what she's doing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whatever differences they have in how to go about things you know that's the thing that they all can relate to right they have a common goal yeah um, I had a question about Patches and Murphy. So they have such a neat bond in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, Patches is a pony. Mm-hmm. And you called you called him Patches because one of his eyes is missing. Her. Her, 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 her right. Mm-hmm. Her, because one of her eyes is missing. No, she's Patches because she's a pinto. Because she's brown. Oh, Although, I was. I thought it was because of her I eye. Never even thought of the eye thing, but uh, yeah, I, I I thought of it because of her coloring. But she, mm. she does is missing an eye. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's so missing me, an eye. Let me tell you the background of, of Patches and Murphy. They're both based on um, horses that uh, Beverly, who took my horse in, Beverly D from Bright Futures Farm. Mm-hmm. Um, these are these were horses that she um, uh, dealt with early on when she was pretty much running this rescue farm out in Pennsylvania by herself. And um, she went to an auction and um, she was there to pick up thoroughbreds. She was basically going to rescue thoroughbreds, but she made a lot of exceptions. And um, she was, there are, are killer buyers. There are guys who come and they buy the house, buy the horses for a slaughterhouse. And they have different, you know, things that they look for. But of course they look for the horses are going to be killed for meat. Oh, they're looking for horses that are brawny. And um, she said that uh, somebody led this pony into the, the ring and the pony was, you know, walking very tentatively, didn't seem to, you know, she thought at first it was afraid. And then she realized that the pony had was missing an eye and probably could hardly even see where it was going in addition to being afraid. And some guys um, sitting in the bleachers next to her, nearby her, uh, laughed and said, I'm not going to bid on that. There's not even enough meat on that that one, you know. And she said, that was it. My hand went up, you know. She said, I, I raised my number and I started bidding on the pony. Um, and she, Oh, so that was true because you yeah, did tell yeah, that in the book. Wow, cool. I, I, used, I almost used what she told me verbatim because she, yeah. she sent me these stories. Now, mm-hmm. Murphy um, was the, was the com- combination of two thoroughbreds that she dealt with early on, two different stories that she had sent me. And um, one of the first horses she rescued, um, a racehorse called Top Guns Fly Free, uh, he had flipped over backwards on jockeys, uh, 
couple of times in the paddock um, where they saddled him up. Now, apparently, he probably spooked at something that was going on above him. Uh, but he had gotten this reputation. He was going to be destroyed. And she took him and he was retrained and he became a jumper. And mm-hmm. uh, and and basically, I, I asked her, I said, did he ever do it after she came to your place? He said, no, he never did it after she came to my place. He said there was something about the place where he was being saddled up, you know, that was freaking him out. But um, she had another um, a mare, a thoroughbred mare that she picked up from uh, somebody's farm that they were going to destroy. And um, that horse uh, pulled this kind of a reverse of what I wrote about in the book, um, getting into the trailer, uh, jammed the, the person that was trying to control her and was in the emergency door, kind of jammed her head and then stuck this person in the emergency door and they were afraid she was going to be injured. Then backed out of the emergency, uh, back, backed out of the trailer as soon as the back door was open, and went running across the the stable yard and jumped a tractor. And uh, I said, now if I can put these two together, <laughs> I'm going to have the world the most high-strung, difficult, talented horse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for her to try and work with because it was just a perfect example. It sounded like it could have been the same horse, you know, mm-hmm, horse mm-hmm. so high-strung and had been through so much trauma. That, um, uh, but at the same time, this is this tractor is like you know five feet by five feet, and he just sails over it, you know. Mm-hmm. MJ and, and Anna both look at him and say, "Well, I guess we know what his next job could be if we can, <laughs> if, we, if we can control him. Yeah. He could become a jumper." And Clint, Clint is the he's the guy that brings the yeah, horses to Anna. Yeah, uh-huh. he works at the racetrack. He works at the racetrack and he's like a good old slap on the back kind of guy who, you know, well, same he's, thing. He's been around it and he's been injured a couple of times. And, uh, you know, he's he's uh, got no illusions. But at the same time, he when he sees an opportunity to, to save a horse, you know, he brings it to her. So, Plus, he's like he has been around a time or two and he can kind of say things like it is to Anna. Yeah. He yeah. said to her, like, if you can't get on this horse, nobody can. Yeah. If you can't, so you better figure if out. If you're not going to ride him, you better find somebody who will. Right. <laughs> because know? she was so not timid. Yeah. 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 But so um, I've, I, like I said, I've done a lot of riding. And these days I'm probably a, a heck of a lot braver than I was when I was younger. Because I don't have to worry about losing my job anymore. I'm retired. But uh, yeah, um, I've had the experience of getting on horses that I was afraid to get on. And I, mm. I drew on that, you know, for one reason or another. Um, and I, I drew on that. And, you know, sometimes you just put your foot in the stirrup and you're like, <laughs> am I, am I going to survive this? You know, and I, I just channeled that feeling into Anna in those scenes. Yeah. It's, um, I like how you, I mean, it is based on a true events, all kinds of true things you inspired in this story. Is there anything that you left out that you wish you would have included now that it's done? No, because I included everything that I thought um, needed to be in there. In fact, I'll tell you something funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was originally 130,000 words. I included oh. much. And frankly, I've, I have never written anything that long before. And uh, I sent it. I was hunting for a long time for a publisher because it just didn't, you know, it didn't fit these terms. Too long. 
right well, no because because it didn't fit that commercial you know uh format that most people are looking for <laughs> and i was i was looking around for for a few couple of years and one day just out of frustration i typed in um animal rescue books and i thought i'd find you know this publisher published this one that publisher published that one if they published anything i could approach them and tamira's uh, uh, site comes up who changed you and it's all about animal rescue. That's all she publishes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I had hope. Uh, so I sent it to her, and she really liked it. But she said, you know, it's a small publishing company. If we have to, if we, uh, have to publish something that's 130,000 words, we're going to have to charge too much for it. People are it's probably going to discourage people from buying it. Can you get it under 100,000 words? And I said, well, after 35 years in journalism, I think I can cut something down, you know. Mm-hmm. thousand words it wasn't easy but the thing is i kept going through i found anything that was extraneous in the beginning i was kicking out a couple words here and a couple words there and by the time i got to the end of the book i'm like that paragraph can go but it really doesn't add anything oh that's so funny so i was desperate and um i felt that it actually became a better book because it was tighter than you know everything in there was really necessary i felt mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was one uh, at the end where I was trying to tie up the, the MJ's thing with her, uh, uh, you know, that her, with her um, brother and uh, uh, the guy that her mother was dating, and they came out to the farm, and, and I looked at it and I said, it's, it's not necessary. That's something that can really go, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, sometimes you do try to just, you know, wrap up, you know, a lo- all the loose ends, but it's not always necessary. Right. Um, hmm. That's... That's neat that you had more in it. Are you thinking of a part two? Not so far, not mm. so far because I kind of like leaving it the way I left it. Um, I would have to go and maybe do something with the PMU cults and whatever. And uh, uh, if it became a tremendous success and everybody was clamoring for one, I would find a way to do it. <laughs> you would, yeah. I kind of like leaving it as, you know, this is, this is just the beginning. They've launched it and then, you know, the reader can kind of, imagine where it's going to go from here. Um, where can people find you? Where are you most active? Uh, I'm not much of a social media person, so I am most active on Facebook. Okay. And it's it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's a, both a professional and, and Facebook and um, professional and uh, personal Facebook presence. Um, I have gotten on to a couple of threads of horse lovers and books about horses and things like that. So I, it's, that's kind of mixed. I get, I do sort of professional networking on those and then I do personal stuff just, you know, on my own mm-hmm. do with friends, you know, so. I'm Eileen Watkins and you can find uh, my books at www efwatkins.com and what other books have you put out there i know the cat groomer series tell us a bit about that line and the titles are so perfect yeah well um that is a um i'll just do a a really short recap of before that i put out eight books with a uh, print-on-demand publisher for um with them for about 13 years and um, those were paranormal mysteries and thrillers. And then um, I 
the last two that I had put out were mysteries. So just around the same time that I was retiring and that publisher went out of business, I was contacted by an agent who had read one of the mysteries. And he was sort of scouting for new authors for Kensington Publishing, which is a big outfit. And um, he asked me if I would wanted to write a series for them. And he had three um, topics that they wanted. Um, that they were, they were cozy mysteries, which is supposed to be, you know, pretty clean, pretty PG, not too gruesome, um, and, you know, somewhat humorous, you know, a little bit. So uh, they, I'll, I'll just say he gave me three topics, two of them mm -hmm. I really couldn't get too enthusiastic about. And then he said, you know, a cat groomer. So the cat groomer who solves murders? He said, yeah, a cat groomer who solves murders. <laughs> and I thought about it and I was like, I could probably get into writing about somebody who worked with animals for a living. That one mm -hmm. appealed to me. So I said, okay, I'll try it, but let me try and figure out if you can actually make a living doing this before I commit myself. Right. So I asked around, you know, to a couple of places and um, found out that if you're going to try to make a living at this, you probably ought to also board. And the surprising thing to me, and I've mentioned, I mentioned this. Oh, wait. So if you're going to make a living at cat grooming, yeah. You need to also board cats because it's too difficult to. Oh my gosh, this is so neat. Okay, but the reason that that it works when you do that is because is for two things. Cats have to be groomed differently from dogs because um, because their behavior is different. Um, their their skin is much more fragile. You know, they really have to be be handled differently, and they actually train people to train to, to groom cats. In separately from grooming dogs is a whole different process. Who would have known? The other thing is that cats do not do well often being boarded in places that also have dogs. Now, my, I haven't boarded animals a lot, but when I put my cats in like a, a vet or someplace to board, I know that I'd go in there and I'd hear the dogs barking and howling and all this kind of stuff. Stressful. Raise they're, they're, because they, they, they don't know when they're going to be attacked. You know, it's mm -hmm. bad so basically, those are two specialties. You put those two specialties together, you've got a full-time job. <laughs> and so uh, when, I, when I could really believe that this could exist in, in reality, I, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try it. So I had a lot of fun uh, coming up with um, my character, who's much younger than me. She's like 27 years old in the first book, and she's just started this business and, uh, in a small town. And um, now I'm, I'm just finishing up book six, which is not going to be out until uh, 2022. But it's another situation where even though it's, it's much more focused on the mystery and, and the characters, um, the human characters, um, I keep slipping in stuff about uh, cats and even occasionally other animals, but mostly about cats um, that people don't understand, that, you know, that are, that are surprising to people, that... Uh, uh, I wrote a book, um, F Feral Attraction, which mm -hmm. was about um, her trying to help get a feral cat colony under control and all the, the people in the, uh, the uh, closed community who objected to having these wild cats roaming around and why trap neuter return is better than just having them all hauled away. And, uh, you know, every, a lot of these things, I, I have Bengal identity and Bengal identity I talked about um, uh, hybrid cat breeding, which is a kind of 
kind of um, legit and kind of shady in, in some places hmm. and um, why it's, you know, you have to be very careful and why you can end up with um, cats that nobody wants because they're, hmm. they're too wild. Um, so I, I try to come up with things like that where I can, I can teach people a little something about animals and, you know, humane practices at the same time. Um, but I also enjoy writing cozy mysteries. Well, you could you could probably tell in in um, Reboot Ranch. I like to slip humor in there every once in a while. Totally, and some of your sarcasm just made me giggle too. Yeah, you know when you're when you're writing a tense story, it helps to to throw you know a little a funny line in there somewhere along the line, or but, even just some silly thing that happens to a character to just kind of ease some of the mm-hmm. bigger picture around it. So like MJ getting her, her thinks her legs broken and she gets it x-rayed by the vet. Yeah. <laughs> that's so yeah, funny. Down, you know, like that that's, it becomes a running joke, you know, between her and Walt, you know, we almost had to put you down, you know? Yeah. And Walt kind of hams it up a bit with her too. Yeah. That was, um, a, that was a fun character because I was dealing with, uh, I was actually dealing with their religious differences there and mm-hmm. uh, um, trying to, you know, make him different from her, but likable and trying to bring two people who, who ordinarily wouldn't have much in common discover that they do have something. Or meet mm-hmm. like MJ would never have met Walt had she not gone to her aunt's farm. If Walt hadn't been kind of a common player already at the, mm-hmm. at Anna's farm, they mm-hmm. would never have crossed paths. Mm-hmm. And it's neat because um, I won't give too much away about the book, but he kind of becomes her knight in shining armor at one point. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, they didn't like each other at all. Mm-hmm. So it's neat how you kind of had that spin and this friendship really, truly blossomed between these two people that probably would never have met otherwise. Mm-hmm. Like he's... Because my overall theme was that this cause was bringing these people together, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that I fit in, fit in nicely with that. And, okay. So we were on the cat groomer series. Sorry. We mm-hmm. got off on a tangent there. And what was some of the other um, books that were in that lineup? Um, first one was the Persian always meows twice. And um, that was uh, in my, my, um, cousin who is retired from a high-tech job in Silicon Valley helped me with the plot of that one. I will say no more about what the plot was, but. Okay, cool. And um, after that came Bengal Identity and then Feral Attraction and um, Gone Kitty Gone, which was um, about a year ago. Mm -hmm. And in that one, um, she, my my heroine uh, takes her, new mobile grooming van to a big cat expo uh, to do grooming demonstrations. And um, the big, the star of the big cat expo is a um, kind of a Taylor Swift, Selena Gomez hybrid um, <laughs> who, uh, is known for her, her um, Scottish fold cat who has become a, a media darling along with her. And um, at one point, while she's doing a, an interview on stage uh, in a kind of a conference room where there's a certain size audience, um, there's a blackout 
and everybody kind of panics and they think there's a fire or something. And when the lights go on, um, somebody has made off with her cat. In <laughs> so it's a catnapping story, catnapping story. And um, uh, I got to um, kind of deal with her. The girl, the young woman, you know, is really devoted to this cat. He's almost like her uh, support animal. Mm -hmm. and, um, somebody is, is using the cat to get to her. So that's the, that's the gist of that one. And then the one that's just out, Claw and Disorder, is um, two families. Uh, my, my, the, the biggest challenge is getting my, my poor heroine um, involved in, you know, uh, life and death situations again and again and again in this small town. Mm -hmm. but, you know, that's the challenge for every cozy mystery. But uh, she's dealing with um, a pair of elderly hoarders who um, have a lot of cats and they also have oh, a, my word. a lot of junk. Yeah. A lot of stuff, that, a lot of which belong to their grown children who are halfway across the country now and don't care anymore, but they still won't get rid of any of it. And um, a lady who is another family of this well-to-do that they, they are renovating their colonial house uh, in absolute period detail to the point where it's almost not livable in the, in the 21st century. Oh, know? funny. Mm -hmm. um, and that's based on somebody that I actually encountered in my newspaper job. And I said, someday I'm going to write about this woman. I'm going to get back at her by writing. <laughs> so, um, so each of them, each of those situations ends up involving a murder somewhere along, well, a death somewhere along the line. Right, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, for various various reasons, poor Cassie gets herself involved again. So she's never going to learn. And she's got a nervous mother, so she doesn't tell her mother <laughs> three quarters of the stuff that she that goes on in her life. She doesn't tell her mother. Her boyfriend eventually finds out because he's involved, and you know, occasionally he tries to pitch in and help her. But in my latest book that I just finished writing, he's like, you know, someday you're going to have to tell your mother because that poor woman. You know? <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. Next time things go south, I don't want to have to go and tell her that something's happened to her daughter and we've been keeping all this stuff for her all this year. Right, right. Oh, that's so cute. Do you have any questions for me? I'm trying to think if there's anything. Uh, I don't think there's anything we haven't covered that maybe. Oh, you were asking about, um, yeah. I don't know how strong stomach your um, your audience has, but you were asking about the slaughter horses and the slaughterhouses. Oh, yes. Yeah. We can definitely get into that. Because, you know, when I was doing some research based on some of these terms and areas that were in your book, I was kind of intrigued to find out that Canada has a lot of these slaughterhouses. And what's interesting is during COVID which we're still in, 80% um, of the cattle in Canada gets slaughtered right by where I live. And so when COVID got, was, it's here. And when it went rampant through some of these slaughterhouses, we, the, the beef industry supply was going down mm -hmm. because they had, a, they had COVID go through the slaughterhouses. So they couldn't slaughter the cattle. Mm -hmm. timely it was and, the people right it affected the workers that's right and so they had to close most down and most animals can't catch it 
No, the animals weren't sick, but they were all waiting to be slaughtered. Mm -hmm. And so it really backed up all of these supply chains because Mm -hmm. of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was reading about, well, reading your book and about the slaughterhouses, like I, I mean, I was living under a rock. Like I didn't even realize how apparent they are Mm -hmm. and still prevalent here in Canada. Mm -hmm. So can you touch a bit on that? Now that we're more composed than we were in the beginning. They were, um, they were outlawed eventually um, in this country. It wasn't that too long ago that they were outlawed in this country. They got rid of, and people were thinking, oh, this is great. We got, got them out of America. Well, that's fine. But um, now they have to take them to either Canada or Mexico. That's where the slaughterhouses are. Which means that um, lots and lots of horses, I don't know how many there are per tra- tra- truck, but you know, there are these long trailer trucks. They have to cram the horses in there and then they have to truck them for hours and hours and hours and hours. I don't know that they ever get let out. You know, the people probably have to take breaks, but um, you can't let like, you know, 30 horses out loose someplace. So you'd have to keep them all together. And uh, um, there's a difference, too, I think, between um, the slaughterhouses are designed for, for cattle and cattle are usually kept together in the same herd, you know, all the time. They're raised to be, be food animals, so they're, they're kept together. Um, they learn to kind of, you know, move as a, as a herd. And, you know, while I don't want to say that they don't suffer, I mean, they don't have extremely high, highly tuned nervous systems. You know, mm-hmm. they're a little bit more low-key than horses are. You put a bunch of horses that don't know each other to, uh, together in a trailer, they've got this instinct, you know, to sort of find, well, who's who? Who's the boss here? Who can I trust? And they fight and they injure each other and they, you know, they get really upset emotionally, you know, and um, same thing happens when you take them to a slaughterhouse, apparently when they can hear other animals, you know, screaming and, and stuff like that, Oh God! they go, they go hysterical. And the other thing is, and this is, you know, kind of graphic, but um, they, the, the uh, standard way of knocking the cattle out, so that supposedly they don't feel any pain when they're being being you know slaughtered, is to use a bolt gun mm-hmm. right here, it goes right into the front of their brain, supposedly kills them right out. And I don't know whether it's 100% um, effective with the cattle, but apparently it doesn't work that well with the horses because the horses get so you know move around so much and get so upset and their their brains aren't the same way, so they can be awake when this whole thing starts. And um, it's just, you know, incredibly brutal, you know. Um, One of the reasons that I tried so darn hard to make sure that my my horse never went through anything like that was, you know, I described Brenda to you and, you know, you Mm -hmm. read about Valentine. I mean, I thought there's no way that that horse is going to end up like that. There's no way. And uh, even MJ in the book goes back and thinks about a pony that she had in camp. And she's Mm -hmm. like, boy, I hope he didn't go to slaughter. But um, it's just, you know, dreadful. And um, at the time that I uh, retired her, there were not that many rescue farms around. Um, One reason that I ended up sending her to Pennsylvania, because there wasn't a whole lot in New Jersey. And they seemed like most of them were looking for horses that they could rehome, that they could retrain, you know, and, and they could rehome. And I knew that she was too sick at that point. You know, if she, if she could still have been ridden, I would have been riding her. Right. So I thought she's got to go someplace where she can just safely spend the rest of her days. Um, 
And uh, I sent her, had her sent out, you know, and that was like a, that, I didn't realize at the time that was like an eight hour trip. I bet, you know, um, I went out, wow. I went out and visited her once and that was, you know, and then I said, <laughs> I didn't realize I was sending her quite this far. But, um, you know, that was the idea that I wanted her to go someplace where there was no risk of anything like this happening to her. But I know what I was going to say. Um, there weren't that many farms. And now these days, there really are quite a few rescue farms because mm-hmm. um, over the years, people have realized how much need there is for this. And, so- and I've heard of rescue farms for racetracks. So once the horse is done racing his glory days, instead of being... Some do specialize in thoroughbreds. And actually, uh, Beverly sort of specializes in thoroughbreds, but she does make exceptions. She got into it because she was a real racing fan. And she, right. she loved thoroughbreds. And um, but when she first started out, um, even though she took you know mostly thoroughbreds, and I found out that my horse was a thoroughbred. I didn't even know that she did my horse's um, my horse's uh, uh, pedigree because she knew mm. mine how to look it up. And she said, "Yeah, she's a thoroughbred." And, you know, look at this. Here's her paper. So, um, and I didn't even really know that. But that's neat. But as a, mainly, you know, that a lot of farms have, have cropped up, and and some of them catered to different breeds. You know, some of them mm-hmm. are thoroughbreds. There are other specific things. You know, some there are standard breads. There are also, you know, the the um, the, the uh, harness races, and uh, they will be rescue farms for them. So this is fortunately there's a lot more today, but there's all there's, there's still so much more of a need than they can even fill. Right, and you, yeah, you definitely touched on that in the book because of the PMU horses. And then just Anna's Rescue and the SPCA and kind of all those different avenues of where a homeless horse or a horse that's no longer wanted can go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a really great book. I was really honored to read it. And here um, where I live, there's a show called Heartland. I don't know. if Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's about this girl who is kind of a horse whisperer. and she treats horses and trains them and will break them and different things. And so I kind of started watching that series. And then when I found your book, I was like, oh, this is just such a a nice book that's similar to that series. And I like that yours was um, based on true events. So Mm -hmm. I'm more of a fan of that. You know, I, I think I told you what happened is that um, uh, back after Beverly took Brenda, um, she started sending me these stories. You know, she knew I was a writer and she was mm-hmm. like, uh, I could send you some, some stories about them. And she it was very informal. She was just emailing them to me. And um, at first we thought of making it a, a nonfiction book, um, but she didn't have too much background on the people who adopted the horses uh, with, you know uh, uh, where they came from she didn't have an awful lot of people stories and um she was busy and she wasn't really you know in, in a position to call people up and interview them in some cases she just didn't want to in, intrude on their privacy and get back to them and so we just kind of dropped it for a while and it was just a few years ago that um i got the idea to make it into a novel and i, I asked her i said how, how would you feel if i just you know, fictionalized it. The fi- people are entirely fictional. She, she, the, uh, she did not have a, a, a husband who uh, got arrested for fraud. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll just clarify that part. This is, this is, you know, the, the Anna and, and MJ are totally fictional characters. But um, I wanted to use, you know, 
the horse incident. And even those are changed, you know, a little bit so that nobody can say, oh, she wrote about, you know, what happened with me and the horse that I sent. Um, it's all, you know, very just one step removed. But um, that just seemed like the way to go because then I could put the people in there, I could put the motivations in there, I could put the background in there. Mm-hmm. Worry about seeing exactly, you know, how it happened. Yeah, it's so neat. And like, it was so nice of her to find, you know, a purpose for some of the stories that she came, came, comes in contact with or came in contact with all the time. Like, it's just such neat life. <laughs> there were some pretty, you know, good stories. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, some of them are sad and some of them are happy or start out sad and, and on a good note. And there's all that in there. I can tell you this, but you may not want to put it on the tape because it is kind of a, um, it is kind of a spoiler alert. But uh, I can tell you this sort of off the record. Okay. Another another true story. I told that um, you had the incident where um, Starbuck was starved and he was, you know, on his last legs and they thought he was recovering, so they turned him in with Valentine. Mm-hmm. And um, they found him dead one morning and they didn't know at first whether he was dead because you know she was trying to lift him up onto the seat mm-hmm. reverse those things that was that was the way my mare went she was oh. she was turned out with a buddy and she was turned out overnight and that was you know the healthiest healthiest situation for her and Beverly came out in the morning and she was lying there and she had one of these fly sheets on her or a blanket I'm, I'm not sure because it was October so it might have been colder and um, the, the, the blanket was kind of ripped and her buddy was there standing over her and she called the vet and she said, you know, um, and he, the vet checked her out and said that she probably had a heart attack, probably she was trying to stand up and had a heart attack because she also had some leg problems at that point. Right. And Beverly said, you know, well, what's the, you know, why, why is your blanket ripped like this? And he looked around at the hoof prints around her and the blanket and he said, this guy was probably trying to pull her up because horses do that. When they when when their buddy goes down, you know, sometimes they think if I can just get him back on the feet, it's gonna be okay. So that was based on truth too. Hmm. That was the hard part to read. But of course, that's uh, that's not something that I want to I want to talk about all the time because it's a real spoiler alert. You know, realize mm-hmm. you, you, you figure after a while that Starbucks gonna die. And the thing is, I didn't want to kill off Valentine because I felt Valentine was too strong a character. I wanted to keep her in the story, but I wanted to use that incident. Mm, the thing with Valentine that I loved the most was when she became the alpha female mm, yeah, and really just stood up for all the horses and everybody at that pretty intense part that you wrote in the book. And I'm like, yes, Valentine, like you're just, you give it to the guy. She was funny. I mean, she never certainly never did anything that dramatic, but um, she cared about her buddies, and you know, she cared. You know, she um, one time I was riding in an indoor arena, and um, the stalls were all along one side, so people were taking the horses out and cross tying them in the aisles and working on them. Okay, and, yeah. And it was uh, it was kind of. In the evening, after work, after school for the younger people, and everybody was kind of, you know, in a hurry. So I'm riding Brenda around, and um, uh, her mare that she was, was real good friends with, that she was turned out with all the time, 
was over in the aisle and the owner's daughter owned her and was getting her ready. And she was fussing and she was causing trouble. And the owner's daughter just gave her took a crop and smacked her and said, yeah, cut it out. And Brenda stopped dead and nays at the top of her locks. She was like, don't hit her. <laughs> don't hit my friend. I thought, oh, oh wow. There's a relationship going on here. And she's so aware. I didn't even think she was paying attention to what was going on, but she just re- reacted, you know, that her friend got smacked, you know. And uh, she was just like that. She was like full of heart, you know. Hmm, hmm. You did mention that a few times um, in your in your words about how they would neigh to each other and be like, are you okay? Or I'm over here. Somebody come and help me. I don't want to be in this pen. Or mm-hmm. communication was just so apparent among the horses mm-hmm. in your story. I loved that. It really brought them like, like almost like a person or somebody that you could relate to, like or yeah. patches or whoever. And I love that they whinnied to each other. Well, that's the thing when you're around horses all the time. And, you know, like I said, I've been in a lot of stables and seen them in a lot of situations. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just so much going on. I mean, with all animals, there's so much more going on than we're even aware of, you know? Mm-hmm. They're aware of so many things. Um, they're, they communicate non-verbally all the time. And it's something that we don't appreciate because we're very verbal. And right. Watch them moving around in a, in a field, and you know, one of them, one of them gives the other one a dirty look, and he moves away, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's just, you know, that is so neat. Own them. The people who own them know what the pecking order is. Right. If you're riding. You know, they'll say, "Don't, don't bring him too close to that mare because that mare doesn't like him." Just to grow a wide berth. You know, they they know what all the relationships are. That is so neat. I've learned. I learned so much with your book about horses, and just um. Yeah, just their personalities and the different types and how some get along better than others. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for... Thank you, because it's always nice to know that somebody somebody understood what you were trying to say and appreciated. Yeah, I really loved it a lot. And I'm grateful that you came on my show. And I'm sorry if I was too emotional. <laughs> Your book really hit home and I can tell it's... it's... Me, I get emotional over too. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. I'm Eileen Watkins, and you can find uh, my books at www.efwatkins.com. What's your favorite book that you would recommend? Oh, gee. Do you have a favorite? Um, well, one person who... Uh, I, I'm sure. She, I hope she's still among among us uh, because it's been a while since she retired. But um, Carolyn Banks uh, wrote wrote um, Horse Mysteries. It was oh, a, okay. Yeah. Carolyn um, Banks. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Murder Well. What's it called? Murder Well. Murder Milk Well Bread. Murder Well Bread. If I can just, you know, pick something out in terms of the horse category. She's, yeah, that's a good one. She's one of the best uh, mystery writers on horse subjects that I've read. Mm. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, too. And, and I will 
be in touch with you soon and let you know when it's going to come out and we'll go from there. Okay. Have a nice day. You too. You Thank too. you. Stay warm in Canada. I will. <laughs> kind of chilly here, but not too bad. Okay. Stay safe too with COVID. Too. Oh yeah. Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a housebound and getting a lot of writing done. Well, that's a good, that's not, a good result. Hey, very much. But if you go out to to a riding stable, it's it's uh, it's a, an enclosed arena, but it's it's got air coming through it from all sides. People wear masks until they get on the horse, and then they're automatically six feet apart. So it's, it's the oh, safe, that's so safe, great. Safest sport at this point. Oh, awesome! Well, enjoy your ride this week. Thank you. You too. You uh, thank you. you Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye bye. Those of you who are new to my show, thanks for listening. You got a pretty great interview with an incredible author and writer from New Jersey. A genuine take of my personality and Eileen's, too, from our sensitive sides. The starfish story is told twice in the book, and both times it makes me tear up. Because we are on video, I too saw Eileen's soft side come through when speaking about her beloved Brenda her horse, and the character Valentine, the horse in the book, that everyone loves, is portrayed after. Eileen is always trying to include humane practice anecdotes throughout her book to just make people aware about animals' treatment and working towards a common cause, rescuing one horse at a time. After 35 years in journalism, isn't that a feat in and of itself? She's been a writer for many years and was approached to write a cozy mystery series. What a flattering compliment. Before we close, I'd like to say thank you to Eileen. I just love how pragmatic she is, truly grounded and just so articulate with her answers. Having a writing background and getting to play with words all day helps, I'm sure. We have a connection now, and I sure hope you enjoyed today's interview. Play chapter one in its entirety so you get a glimpse of the book I fell in love with. Links to Reboot Ranch and all of her other books and where you can find Eileen Watkins are in my show notes. As we start to wrap up this season, I still have a few shows coming up with people that will make you take pause. You're going to meet Tamira from Who Chains You Publications, the publisher for Eileen's book, Reboot Ranch, and her strong affiliation to rescuing animals of all types. It's in her DNA. It's what drives her. Also, Rana LaFay Hoot, her incredible memoir, and my audio production of her book, full of love and betrayal, rejection, murder, and the connection to heaven. Another Val is coming up on my show, and her incredible journey through scrapbooking, and how she uses it as her cathartic creative therapy outlet. She's someone you'd love to be friends with. I also sit down with a fellow podcaster, Brandy Flack, about her show, Human Amplified, and the stories 
she tells and how incredibly vulnerable and raw her guests are on her show. It's true and heavy and makes you reflect. And we're going to sit down and talk to Anna Bozzolino and her life around losing her job, separation, love and heartbreak, and her hobby that's kind of saving her, quilting. So lots still coming up. Stay tuned this season three as we have so much more to come. If you have an idea for my show, email me. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you can take a minute and rate my show or leave a comment, I would love this. Because honestly, I'm just flying by the seat of my pants here sharing things I love in this eat, read, create theme of my life. Until next time, I'm Valerie Moss in Studio 17. Chapter 1. Two Years Later (laughs) The big, cream-colored SUV rolled to a stop in front of the old ranch house. Through her window on the passenger side, MJ took in the faded yellow siding, scraggly foundation bushes, and patched screen door. A horse blanket sagged over the railing of the open porch, which ran the width of the house. MJ hadn't remembered the place as being quite so run down. Her mother Erica, still behind the wheel, gave her head a shake that made the blonde waves bounce. Still time to change your mind, kid. Anna will understand. MJ had the same thought, but only for a second. That would mean breaking a promise to her aunt. Besides, she'd have to go home and do things her mother's way, her teacher's way, her therapist's way. Be practical, conform, get with the program. Go to a good college, get a job where she could make lots of money working in an office. The kind of life that killed my father... MJ blinked away a rebellious tear and set her jaw. I'm not backing out now. Anna's counting on me. Suit yourself, but it's going to be a long summer for you out here in the middle of nowhere. We didn't pass any shopping malls or pizza parlors and that pathetic excuse for a town we drove through. They had visited the farm just once before, when Anna bought it a year ago. For some reason, though, the drive-out seemed to take more time today. Probably because MJ was more conscious of the distance. She reminded her mother, Some kids spend their gap year backpacking through the Himalayas. Would you rather I do something like that? This is safer, I guess, Erica admitted. Though out here, you might die of boredom. MJ hopped from the passenger seat and slammed the door behind her. With a resigned air, Erica also got out and followed her daughter up the weedy flagstone walk and the front porch steps. The thick sizzle welcome mat at the door with the silhouette of a trotting horse had been swiped often by muddy boots, 
MJ's mother stepped onto it gingerly as she pressed the doorbell. The chime echoed inside the house, but even after a second try, no one answered. She's not home. Erica sounded almost hopeful. Nice try, Mum. We are later than we said we'd be. She's probably out by the barn. A flicker of distaste crossed Erica's lightly made-up features as she gazed past MJ. The large gray barn, also old but refreshed with white trim, sat about a hundred yards off on the other side of the dirt road. Alongside her daughter, she walked down the gentle slope. Meanwhile, MJ's spirits lifted. The June air, muggy back where she lived, felt cleaner out here. The fresh breeze also carried a distinctive, earthy sweet scent from the trio of large, rectangular paddocks just beyond the barn. In the first, two animals were turned out together. One was a buckskin quarter horse named Dash that she had seen on the farm's website. He shared his space with a brown and white pinto pony. A second enclosure held a thin but alert chestnut who let out a whinny as the girl and her mother approached. When they reached the first paddock, the buckskin and the pony ambled over, hoping for treats. MJ wished she had thought to bring some carrots. Hi guys, what's up? The animals poked their heads between the boards of the fence. It had an electric wire, but that seemed to be turned off. She rubbed the buckskin's dark, velvety nose, and he wrinkled it in pleasure. When she played with the pony's heavy white forelock, she caught her breath in shock. One eye was missing. The socket stitched shut long ago in a permanent wink. That's right. Anna mentioned the pony on her website, too. What's her name? Patches? Erica muttered about getting mud and manure on her designer boots. She paced over to the barn door and called out impatiently, Annie, are you? I'm here, I'm here. The answering voice had a similar pitch but a more cheerful lilt. Sorry, I was rinsing Valentine's hay. When Anna Lohmeyer emerged from the barn, MJ noticed again the similarities and differences between her aunt and her mother. They weren't twins. Erica having passed the dreaded milestone of 40 just recently, and her sister three years ago. Still, they shared the same tall, slim build, elegant features, wide green eyes, and long blonde hair. Anna's style always had been more down-to-earth, but MJ thought she'd taken it to a new low since moving out here. Today, she wore stained jeans tucked into short, thick-soled paddock boots. Her loose t-shirt was a faded rose color and spotted with water. Her face was bare of makeup, and wisps of pale hair strayed from her practical ponytail. Still, her wide grin looked beautiful to MJ. Great to see you guys. Anna started to hug her sister, then drew back with a laugh. I'm a mess, I know. Erica looked grateful for this consideration. MJ rolled her eyes and hugged Anna anyway. A little water or even manure wouldn't hurt her black jeans and old Evanescence rock concert t-shirt. Guess you found the place okay. 
Anna asked. Yes, thank goodness for the GPS. I didn't remember it being so far. I was starting to wonder if we were still in New Ch- Erica broke off with a mousy squeak. The buckskin had reached through the fence to nibble her beige linen jacket. She jumped away and checked the hem for slobber. Bad boy Dash, Anna scolded him mildly. He's just hungry. It's almost time for their dinner. Recovering, Erica ruffled her daughter's dark, ragged hair at the top, where it was dyed emerald green. Better watch out, sweetie. He might think this is grass. Hilarious mom, thought MJ. Like that nice, even blonde shade is your natural color. Anna glanced at her sporty watch. MJ, let's take your stuff up to the house. Your mom probably wants to start home before rush hour. While the three of them headed back to the SUV, Erica chuckled. Jesus, almost sounds like you want to get rid of me. Anna paused for a beat. No, not at all. You're welcome to stay for coffee. But first, I do have to feed the horses. Unless you want to help. MJ piped up. I do. Oh, you will. You're going to help plenty. I just hope you're still that enthusiastic after a week or two. Anna's going to wear you out. Erica warned. MJ recognized another veiled hint that she wouldn't be able to hack it on the farm. Not me. MJ knew because she was on the short side and could stand to lose a few pounds, people thought she wasn't very athletic. And it was true that she hated most team sports. But she'd taken riding lessons for a couple of years now and had done well. She didn't mind having a teammate if it was a horse. To prove she could pull her weight, MJ carried her luggage, her own fat purple duffel bag, and one of her mother's big, hard-sided, rolling suitcases up to the front porch. Meanwhile, Anna's cell phone rang. She fished it from her pocket and glanced at the number. Then she excused herself and stepped away to talk. Even so... Her niece picked up a few scraps of the conversation. Everything okay? Anna paused to listen, then blew out a breath. Aw, man, where are you now? Another beat. Yeah, it's not the best time, but okay, see you then. Be careful. She tucked the phone away and returned to the SUV. Problem? Her sister asked. No, no, I'm just expecting a delivery, and I hoped it would be unloaded before you came. The van's got to pull in here. She gestured toward Erica's own glossy vehicle. You are trying to get rid of me. Well, I should be hitting the road anyhow. It's a long drive back, and I left Carl alone at home. Yeah, MJ added dryly. No telling what craziness he'll be up to. Her younger brother seemed to be everything she wasn't. A straight-A student, athletic, and popular. She almost wished someday he would screw up just to make her look better. Still, the warmth with which her mother hugged her goodbye startled her. Call me any time, okay? 
Erica also pecked her on the cheek before getting back in her car and heading off down the long, gravel driveway. MJ watched her leave with a sudden, empty feeling. In spite of all their arguments over the last year or so, she was still mom, a known quantity. Now there was only Anna, still pretty unknown. Her aunt, the Erica from an alternate universe, threw an arm around her shoulders. Wanna help me feed the horses? You bet. MJ tried to keep pace with Anna's long strides on the way back to the barn. You said you were washing hay. Why? For Valentine. She's got a breathing problem. They call it COPD in humans. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. In horses, they call it heaves. And washing the hay helps? Even good hay usually has some dust and mold particles, and those make heaves worse. Rinsing gets rid of them. Just inside the barn door, Anna stopped by a big, galvanized metal tub filled with water. She lifted out a couple of flakes of dripping hay, contained in a net. MJ had tried picking up that much dry hay once at the stable where she rode, and it weighed plenty. She couldn't imagine how heavy this armful must be. But Anna carried it easily toward the pen that held the thin chestnut. Open that gate for me, she asked. Well, MJ did, the mare trotted in their direction. Her eyes were big and bright, but her nostrils flared with her efforts to breathe. Closer up, MJ could even hear a slight wheezing sound. Anna dropped the hay into a rack attached to a lower fence rail. A horse with heaves should always eat with its head down. Helps keep the airway open, but not straight from the ground because you don't want her breathing in dust. While the mare started on her dinner, MJ stroked the golden red coat. It looked dull rather than healthy and shiny, and she could see the rippling ribs and bumpy spine. Anna brought over a wheelbarrow of dry hay for the other two horses. So MJ, you're taking a year off before college. I gather this was not your mum's idea. Getting right to the point, huh? She probably told you that I screwed up. I had early acceptance from a college based on last year's grades, but this year I got a lot of C's and D's, so they, what you call it, rescinded the acceptance. Well, you had a rough year losing your dad. Didn't Erica explain that to them? She did. MJ grabbed a flake and tossed it to Patches to avoid Anna's eyes. They said I could still get in if I spent this summer pulling up my grades and agreed to do my first year of college on academic probation. Uh-huh, and... I figured I wouldn't do any better studying during the summer than I did all year in school. My head's just not into that stuff these days, you know? I guess. Mum sent me to a therapist, Dr. Mayer. He said I was depressed and maybe had a little ADD. He also thinks I have something called oppositional disorder because I argue with Mum so much. When Anna raised an eyebrow, MJ responded, I know, right? 
but he did come up with one good idea. He told Mum it might help me to take a year off and relax. Get out more into nature. Her aunt smiled. Might have known Erica would agree to this arrangement without a doctor's prescription. Gotta change the subject, the girl thought. Want me to fill the water buckets? Sure. The hose is on the left side of the barn. MJ filled Valentine's bucket first and tried not to struggle too obviously as she carried it back out to the paddock. You had this horse when we came out here the first time. Why'd you name her Valentine? Because the star on her forehead looks like a heart. Also because everybody loves her and she loves everybody. Anna scratched the chestnut along the top of her mane. Don't you, pretty girl. MJ watched the mare tuck into her hay. Good appetite. She still can't keep weight on, though. Uses up most of her energy just trying to breathe. How'd she get so sick? Anna shrugged. She could be allergic to mold, dust, or pollen. Or she might have been kept in a dirty stable. When horses stand around in their own waste all day, it wrecks their lungs. Was Valentine your first rescue? How did you get her? Anna's face clouded, and it was her turn to glance away. Hmm, long story. Another time, okay? No problem. MJ knew how it was to have things in her past he didn't like to talk about. You had another horse, too, last time. A dark brown one. Starbuck. The standard bread. I adopted him out three months ago to a couple in Monmouth County. He's had a rough life, so I'm really hoping that works out. Anna glanced at her watch again. MJ guessed she was still waiting for that delivery. They finished with the three horses, and Anna spanked hay dust off onto her jeans. I appreciate you coming out to help me, MJ, even if you are just doing it under doctor's orders. Oh, no. The girl stared at her. It's not like that. I asked to come here. Erica said so, but I wasn't sure whether to believe her. She was mad that I wouldn't go to some summer school. She said if I was going to take a gap year, I should at least do something meaningful. I thought about that, and the only adult I know who's doing anything meaningful is you. Anna's mouth fell open. That expression morphed into a crooked smile. Erica probably doesn't see it that way. Neither do most of my friends. They think I've gone off my rocker. But thanks for the vote of confidence. Now, let's go up to the house and get you unpacked before... A dusty blue pickup rattled down the drive, pulling an older model single-horse trailer. Anna straightened her spine on guard. The truck drove all the way into the barnyard and eased to a stop. From inside the trailer rang a barrage of loud bangs, like gunshots. Bam! Bam! The power and fury behind those kicks startled MJ. She glanced at her aunt. Some of the healthy, sun-kissed color faded from Anna's cheeks. Still, she spoke softly. 
MJ, I need you to go back up to the house, okay? And just keep out of the way.